Recently, the Ainsley family, as a Lenten devotion, watched the animated film, The Prince of Egypt, which is a film about the Exodus. Uh, because as Lent harkens back to Genesis, it harkens back to the Exodus. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness is a recap and redemption of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, his temptation and fasting is a part of the new and ultimate exodus of which Israel's exodus is a type. The work of Jesus is a work of new exodus. And it's presented as such in the Gospels, especially uh, in the Synoptics, and I would say throughout the New Testament. And without some knowledge, you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar, but without some knowledge of the story of Israel, of the Exodus in particular, it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand the New Testament to understand the person and work of Jesus. And the converse is true as well. You cannot understand the Exodus apart from the revelation of God and Christ. So in the Exodus story, we tried to do this a little bit as we watched the movie, uh, we tried to see Christ, and in it we tried to recount what Christ has done for us. Because we were, like the Israelites, in slavery, not to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, but in slavery to sin and to death and to Satan, of which Pharaoh is a type. We were delivered out of bondage, not by the blood of lambs spread on the doorposts and lintels, but by the Lamb of God who shed his blood on the hard wood of the cross. We went through the waters. We went through the Red Sea. We went through the waters of baptism to freedom. Scripture, uh, Paul especially, connects explicitly the crossing of the Red Sea in the Old Testament with the sacrament of baptism. As the Israelites were led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, so are we led, and not only led, but indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We are sustained, fed in the wilderness of this present age by the true manna that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's where we are in the story of the new exodus and Lent makes us cognitive of this. We are in the wilderness. We are not yet home. We have not yet entered the promised land of the age to come. The resurrected life where God will dwell in our midst forevermore. No, we are in the wilderness beset by trial and temptation. At war with the enemies of our souls. Said simply, the Exodus points to Jesus. The Exodus is all about Jesus. And the Exodus is fulfilled 
in and through Jesus at the Transfiguration, which Jonathan preached just a, seems like a year ago, but just a few weeks ago. Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah. So he's talking with the man, namely Moses, who led the first exodus. And what are they talking about? They, Luke 9.31, spoke of his departure. Literally, in Greek, exodus. I wish they had not translated, but rather transliterated. They're talking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Because through his death and resurrection... The new and true exodus is accomplished. On the road to Emmaus, Luke writes that beginning with Moses and all the prophet, prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We are then to search the scriptures for and through the lens of the crucified and risen Jesus. Keeping as much of that in mind as we can, let us look at our Old Testament lesson. And you really need about 10 sermons to unpack Moses and the burning bush. Uh, I was reading uh, a sermon by Origen of Alexandria, who did a series of sermons on the Exodus. And in his first one, he says, even a day does not suffice to unpack a single word of this text. Exodus 3, 2 through 5. I'll read it again briefly. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Interesting thing going on here that's not particular to this text, but we see it in several places throughout the Old Testament. Notice that the text begins and it says, the angel of the Lord. That is the angel of Yahweh. When you see in your English Bibles, Lord in all caps, that's not stylistic. That's telling you that it's standing in for the divine name of God, Yahweh. The holy name of God. It says, it says the angel of the Lord appeared in the midst of the bush. But then it says that the Lord the word is Yahweh, saw Moses turn aside, and then finally, that God, Elohim, spoke to him. So who appeared and spoke to Moses? Was it the angel of the Lord or God? And this, again, is not the only Old Testament story where this happens. Uh, in Genesis 32, I think, around there somewhere, Jacob wrestles with a man. Hosea, hearkening back, says that Jacob wrestled with an angel. What does Jacob say? What does the angel say? You've wrestled with man and with God. 
And Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. If you guys remember Hagar, who uh, Abraham took up as uh, his wife, really a sort of concubine because Sarah had not yet conceived and bore Isaac, and there's a contentious relationship, uh, just an argument against polygamy right there. You know, the two wives are not getting along. And Sarah sends uh, Hagar out into the wilderness, and she's going to die of thirst with young Ishmael. And the text says that the angel of the Lord appears to her. But then throughout the text, you have the angel of the Lord, the, this figure blessing her. And then the text says that she called on the name of Yahweh. And then she, she calls the figure who she seemed after that encounter, she, she calls him the God who sees. He says, you are a God of seeing. So we have this mysterious figure in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord who is distinct from Yahweh, but also seems to be Yahweh. I think a quick plunge into the etymology, don't fall asleep. A quick plunge into the etymology of the word angel will be enlightening. The word angel, malak in Hebrew, means messenger. And it can denote, like many words, even in our own language, it can denote a messenger. It can speak about action with no reference to the ministering spirits we know as angels. So who could the messenger of Yahweh possibly be? Hmm. Messenger message is there perhaps a conceptual relationship between message and word who fits the profile of being distinct from god the father but also god in the beginning was the word and the word was with god so distinct and the word was god unity he was in the beginning with God. Won't keep you in suspense. The early church fathers, by and large, were convinced that the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, was the pre-incarnate Christ. And besides the aforementioned evidence, the interchangeability of the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh, the distinction in unity, the messenger of Yahweh saying and doing things that would not be appropriate for an angel to do. One text that is cited in Isaiah 9-6, uh, cited as evidence, is this, where the Messiah is referred to as messenger. The verse reads as such in the Septuagint, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which if I can oversimplify, the Septuagint uh, was the King James Bible, if you will, of the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world. And it says this, because a child was born to us, a son was given to us, whose leadership came upon his shoulder, and his name is called Messenger of the Great Council. Jesus, in John 8, 
uses the divine name, Yahweh. He, sa he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's what Yahweh means. I am he. I am that I am. Jesus uses that name and he applies it to himself. So Jesus, I would suggest in John 8, is because where was this name? We just read it. Where was the name of God, Yahweh? I am that I am. Where was that first revealed? Here in Exodus 3 on Mount Oreb to Moses in the burning bush. And Jesus takes that name and he appropriates it to himself. So Jesus is not only identifying himself as divine, as one with the Father, but perhaps as the one in the bush. You have these patriarchs and prophets in Scripture that saw God. But who did they see? The person of the Father... So we have one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The person of the Father cannot be seen. Scripture says that no one can see God and live, yet we have these people that see God. They can't see God the Father. Scripture says in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God. That has to refer to the person of the Father. But then John goes on. The only God, that would be God the Son, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has revealed him. Those of you in school and seminary, if you've heard the word exegesis, just drawing out the meaning, the word here is exegeto. The, the Son exegetes the Father. We only know the Father through the Son. This is neat stuff. In today's epistle, Paul interprets the Exodus, the story of Israel. If you read his writings, the entire Old Testament, allegorically. That does not mean before you pick up and throw stones at me, that I don't think the exodus happened. These are real events that point beyond themselves to greater, larger spiritual realities. And Paul interprets the exodus and the story of Israel allegorically. That is, as speaking of, ultimately, Christ and the church. He writes, For they, that is, Israel according to the flesh, the Israelites, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He doesn't seem to be saying that the rock was merely a symbol of Christ, but that the rock from which they drank was a theophany, a manifestation of, of God, of the divine presence, a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity akin to the appearance of the messenger of Yahweh in the burning bush. 
He also writes when speaking of Israel's history that they put, he tells us as the church, don't put Christ to the test as they did in the wilderness. So he conceives of of Israel as having put Christ to the test. He also interprets the text um, morally, ascetically. In other words, he sees the history of Israel as instructive for the church. Twice, he says in our pericope, our, our New Testament lesson, that these things, particularly the judgment on Israel, happened as examples, as warnings for the church. So what does all this do? One thing it does is this. Recognizing that Christ was present and active in the Old Testament. He wasn't just in heaven sitting on the sidelines like, I can't wait till I have something to do. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today forever. The one triune God has one plan of redemption that, that he's working for the sake of the world. And recognizing Christ in the Old Testament helps preserve the continuity between the so-called Old Testament and New Testament. And protects against this error of what I'll call neo-Marcionism. Marcionism was one of the first heresies in the early church. And it's like, okay, Jesus is a different God than the God in the Old Testament. It's an oversimplification. God was mean and tough and harsh in the Old Testament. And he took a Xanax and he's so chill. That's <laughs> so bad to say, but hippie Jesus. And he's never going to talk about sin. He's never going to make you feel bad. He's so different. It's a different God. There's not continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We just need to throw the Old Testament out. If you throw the Old Testament out of the New Testament, you won't have much left. There's the continuity there. And by the way, I would say our Old Testament lesson is maybe the most encouraging. It's the New Testament lessons that bring the heat this morning. Jesus is saying, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. He's warning them, of course, out of love. But he's teaching them the wages of sin is death. You keep going the way you're going as a people... Your way of being Israel instead of God's way of being Israel, you're going to be destroyed as a consequence. And you know what? Four decades later they were. The Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. So it protects against this error that God was one way under the old covenant and one way under the new covenant. One of the biggest misunderstandings in modern Christianity, in modern Protestant Christianity, is that under the old covenant, you had to do all these things. And under the new covenant, you don't have to do anything. There's no responsibility. But repentance, obedience, holiness duty, obligation, faith working through love 
mattered in the Old Testament and it matters in the New Testament. These things did not go away when Jesus came. Again, look at 1 Corinthians. Paul's argument, he's saying, he's warning Corinth. So I can get in trouble here, which I think Corinth is a type of the Episcopal Church. Enthusiastic about the sacramental life, but not so much concerned with holiness and walking with Jesus in obedience to his holy word. And Paul says, he teaches them, he says, okay, the Israelites were members of God's covenant family. So they were in, just like you. He's dealing with them as Christians. They are Christians. He said, Israel had been freed from slavery. They had gone through the water to new life, the baptism of Moses. They ate the bread of angels. They received the law of Sinai. They were led through the wilderness with the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. The Lord tabernacled in their midst. I'm expanding a little, but he's laying out that they were engaged as bona fide members of the people of God in the liturgical and sacramental life of the Old Covenant. And what does, what does Paul say, go on to say? Paul does not say, Woo, aren't you glad you don't have to worry about all that since we're under grace? You can just do whatever you want. No, he says, these things happened to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ages, the end of the age has come. If anything, Paul is saying that the stakes are higher now. That the expectation of responsibility is higher because Israel had the types, they had the shadows, they had the signposts. In Christ, we have the reality. The law of Moses could not save them. One of the reasons was because the law was external to them. But in Christ, the law of Christ, by the Spirit, has been written on our hearts. We have been changed and transformed and made alive. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is grace? It's participation in the life of God. That we're united with God through Christ and have been given everything we need for life and godliness. So the responsibility is, since we have that which those under the law and the prophets longed for, how much greater a responsibility? In 1 Corinthians 10, we'll land the plane. Uh, abruptly. <laughs> want to understand, I want you to understand, Paul is not denigrating baptism in the Eucharist. He's not saying, oh, they don't matter. No, the sacraments, to keep with the Exodus motif, the sacraments are the theophanies of the new covenant. God manifest, Christ made manifest and appearing in our midst under the form of bread and wine. 
But, <laughs> Paul is teaching, baptism and the Holy Eucharist don't exempt you from loving and following Jesus. From, <laughs> you can't just go through the motions. They don't exempt us from repentance, from working out our salvation with fear and trembling, from obedience and obligation, all of which are connected and grounded in love. Think of the summary of the law. There are different ways in which we love God with all that we are. And again, there's continuity. Loving God and obeying God mattered under the old covenant and it mattered under the new covenant. And the fact that Jesus was in the Old, Old Testament demonstrates that continuity. Jesus was not working um, again. He was not working for a completely different religion that he would one day in his incarnation later undermine. It's ridiculous. You lose the Trinity. You lose salvation if you, if you do that. I've seen, um, not to end on a, a sour note, but I've, I've seen in the Episcopal Church at times uh, with the sacraments the same attitude I saw in the Baptist Church with the sinner's prayer, if you're familiar with that. And I, it's this attempted manipulation of the divine by means of ritual and incantation. Well, drive through bat just baptize my baby never see you again just i got baptized so i'm good well baptism is the beginning of the christian life baptism does everything that scripture says it does but it's not the whole of the christian life it's not a fast food sacrament it's the new birth and we're supposed to grow up in christ by grace by cooperating with grace well in the baptist church with the sinner's prayer, it's like, okay, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart at summer camp in 1987. I've never thought about Jesus since, but I'm good. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. That God, you can't touch me because I said these words. And Paul says, no, 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 no. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. But with many of them, God was not pleased. This happened for us as an example, as a warning for those who are on the end of the ages come. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm, Paul is not talking, I'm not talking about how you become a part of the family of God. He's talking about how you live as a member of such, that you live as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul is not writing to Corinth to tell them how to become Christians. They already are. He's instructing them how to live as such, and he's warning them against participating in the life of the church, in the sacramental life, while at the same time being bereft of love and repentance and holiness and obedience. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And But... We are blessed to live in these last days, to be in a position in history that we as the church have gone through the new and true exodus. We don't have types and shadows. We have the reality, which is Christ our Lord, who manifests himself week by week, mass by mass, in our midst and offers to us his divine life. So let us continue to cooperate with grace. Let us walk as Jesus walked. 
And in this holy season of Lent, let us put off anything that hinders our fellowship with God so that we can journey with the Lord Jesus, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be all honor, glory, and praise. Amen.